A young cowboy named Billy Joe grew restless on the farm. A boy filled with wanderlust who really meant no harm. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. This is Our American Stories. It's been called the peacemaker, the equalizer, the gun that won the West, Colt. The name is legendary. The gun, an historic American icon. The Colt revolver helped tame the frontiers, win wars, and spark a revolution in American manufacturing. There's an old West adage that goes something like this. Quote, God created man, Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever and his empire her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. Let's take a listen to that story. Samuel Colt is born July 19, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of six to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis, and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hosley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies, but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble. After his expulsion, Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship. You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me? That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India. Well, here he is. Nice strong worker, just like I told you. His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming, explaining the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time. 
you had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So loading single shotguns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good. Colt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel and handles, Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock, and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler's streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T, as the playbills read giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat, and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide. Sam guaranteed his audience a good half-hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver. Go on. Take a shot. How about another? And your revolver works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is going to revolutionize the world. He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Colt would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality, it's going to completely win over whoever he's asking. With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? And when we come back, more on the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's gonna go off at the same time, or even blow up the cylinder. Colt improves his design, and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber, five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson, and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance on such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas, the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf and the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt revolver. And every ranger was armed with two Colts. They were used to hearing the one shot go off, and then they all scramble to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. Would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by. After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances, and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands. On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers in the country of Mexico. 
for Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before. You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in. On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his rangers fight. With a $25,000 U.S. government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847. The revolver went through the process of user influence, in influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention. Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen. Increase the black powder by 60 grains. The barrel to nine inches. The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm. Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars, and the name Colt becomes synonymous with revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success. But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design, it's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers settling in the West. Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality. Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist. Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard. You choose. Wrong. It's this one. See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory. Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. 
It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Cole perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California Gold Rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 Pocket Revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back. Reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six-cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least. Roland White came up with this idea for a bored-through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something Colt had. The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Samuel Colt's story, the revolver's story, here on Our American Stories. And we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. And now the last installment of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver, Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney. My dad used to say, there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sundance of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product. Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colts 
biggest rivals, Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gun making is born. Smith & Wesson. Samuel Cole built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now it was just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the U.S. military for years, but the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie. When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers, and that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home. In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow Elizabeth is left in control of the company in a personal fortune of $15 million, the equivalent of over $300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running, even as the war wages on. After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning then, on February 5, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, 
the Colt 45, also known as the Peacemaker, and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873 Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action peacemakers with Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877. Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and in a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Harden. When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prized possession. The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers. It's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms. People are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today. Colt transformed his products into icons, and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence. The story of the Colt company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling gun, Browning rifles and machine guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Anschutz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories too, and that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, but Out Where the West Begins, the first one, was about business leaders and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. Uh, been a business innovators and how they've changed America. And we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories. Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway, the story of the piano makers in New York, Sam Walton, who changed retail forever, and Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen, and he was the founder of FedEx. 
and told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen. And as we learned from the Colt story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is our American story, Samuel Colt's story, the birth of the revolver, its story. More after these messages. our American stories, and now we bring you the story of a Frenchman of, well, let's just say epic proportions, who had a major influence on the world of American entertainment. Here's Jesse. This is the story of a giant. If you're old enough to recognize the theme music here, you probably know exactly who we're talking about. The most famous giant in modern times, also known as the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant stood at seven feet, four inches tall, and weighed over 500 pounds. Now, his height is actually debated, but I'll go with the bigger numbers because he deserves it, and that's the numbers his own website quoted. He was undefeated in the world of pro wrestling from 1973 to 1987 and held the title of WWF World Heavyweight Champion of the World. Now, we all know that pro wrestling is just for fun, right? But trust me, you wouldn't want to get thrown across the ring or sat on by this guy. Live to my left, the one and the only Andre the Giant and Andre the wrestling fans indeed, the general public all over the entire world welcome the opportunity to see you in person. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate that. And you say I'm traveling all over the world, entire world, and I'm very happy traveling all over the world, and very happy to see all those people, all different people, and all different countries. A world-famous wrestler, Andre the Giant was also an actor in films like The Princess Bride. Beat it, or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. Born Andre Rosimov in France, his parents and four other siblings were all of pretty normal size. He suffered from a disease known as giantism, which gave him an overabundance of growth hormones, which made his body continue to grow through his entire life. He was six foot three and 208 pounds by the time he was 12 years old. Here's Andre's brother, Jacques, talking about growing up with Andre on the farm. My parents were very cool. We had a lot of freedom. Of course, we had to work a lot because at that time we didn't have a lot of money. So on Thursdays with my brother, we had to cut wood to heat the house. And that was a good way to pass the time. My brother really started to grow when he reached 16. Yeah, when he was 16. He was kind of a curiosity. Of course, everybody looked at him. They turned their heads as he passed. He was very strong, that's for sure. We had a flat tire in the back, and we didn't have a jack, so I unscrewed all the lug nuts, except for one. Suddenly, he lifted the car, and I would take the spare tire, and we wouldn't need a jack anymore. 
That's when we could tell he was strong. Being so big wasn't very easy for young Andre. In fact, he was too big to fit on the school bus by this age, and his parents couldn't afford a car to get him to and from school. Luckily, Andre had a kind neighbor with a truck that would help him get back and forth to school. This kind neighbor just happened to be Nobel Prize winner and esteemed playwright Samuel Beckett. Andre dropped out of school after the 8th grade because he didn't really think he would need an education to work on his father's farm. Eventually, his sheer size and weight caught the eye of a local wrestling promoter who convinced him to move to Paris at the age of 17. He was taught professional wrestling back when guys actually wrestled without all the stage antics like we see in the world of pro wrestling today. But it wasn't easy. Nobody wanted to wrestle the giant. He didn't know his own strength and it was hard to find an opponent willing to take him on. But he gradually made a name for himself and he toured all over the world as a spectacle in the sport until he was hired by Vince McMahon Sr., founder of the World Wrestling Federation. Known at the time as the WWF, which went on to become WWE. Little disclaimer here, I don't watch this stuff anymore. I sure liked it when I was a kid. Andre the Giant was the best. He soon became an international celebrity and people would drive for miles just to see him in action. On March 26, 1973, Andre the Giant debuted as WWF fan favorite, defeating Buddy Wolf in New York's Madison Square Garden. Fast forward to 1987 and he was wrestling Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 3 in Pontiac, Michigan. There were 93,173 people in the crowd that night, the largest recorded attendance of a live indoor event in North America at the time, a record that would stand until 1999 when Pope John Paul II visited St. Louis. Here's Hulk Hogan. Andre is a superstar. He was the biggest and greatest superstar this business has ever known and ever will know. I mean, he was Andre the Giant. He's the one that laid the groundwork for Hulk Hogan, for Stone Cold Steve Austin, for The Rock, for anybody else that walks through this, these doors of the WWE Universe, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Andre the Giant. You know, and, and to know him as a superstar and the Giant, I remember when I was a fan, I used to watch him, and he would just put his hand on the top rope and lean over the top rope when he was in his prime, and I would just look at his hip and his leg hanging off the ring. It looked like a Clydesdale. You know, it was bigger than anything I'd ever seen, and never dreamed I'd be friends with him or ever get to meet him, but, you know, to fast forward to, you know, him being the greatest of all time, and as a person, what he went through, because if I would walk behind him in the airport, I would hear, oh my gosh, did you see that guy, or a lot of very unkind things were said, you know, and he could hear him, and, and for him to walk through and be as kind of a person as he was and as gentle of a person. Because if he would have been a mean person, there would have been none of us around. There would have been, talk about the guy that never got pinned, that would have been the guy. By most accounts, Andre was a jovial giant, content to play cards, socialize, and enjoy all the food and drink his success afforded him. During matches, he amused himself by stepping on an opponent's long hair or wringing out the sweat from his singlet into their face. In one bout, Jake the Snake Roberts recalled that Andre waited until Roberts was on the mat as he squatted down and unleashed his flatulence. According to Roberts, this went on for 30 seconds because giants fart for extremely long periods of time. Aside from wrestling, Andre the Giant landed several roles in the movies. Most notably, he played Fazik in The Princess Bride. Here's co-producer of that unforgettable film, Rob Reiner. Andre was a great guy, very smart, but Andre liked to drink. Andre liked a little drink. One day he comes to work and I said, Andre, 
what did you do last night? And he says, uh, I went to the bar, had a couple of drinks. I said, well, what do you drink? He says, uh, three bottles of cognac, six bottles of wine. I said, Andre, do you, get, you must have been drunk. He said, no, I don't, I don't get drunk. A little tipsy, but no. So now the day we're supposed to shoot, the ending of the movie, which we shot and didn't use, because we have, you know, Peter Falk saying, as you wish. We had the little boy, after Peter Falk leaves, he leafs through the book, and he starts, you know, reliving it. And then we had the four heroes on the four white horses. He looks out the window, and he sees them, and he waves to them. So we had these four white horses, and we had Andre. We had to, you know, he's 500 pounds, so there's no horse that could support him. So we had to figure out a way to lift, you know, lower him from the ceiling on, like, cables, and... Uh, that day, the Nouveau Beaujolais came out, and he started drinking about 9 o'clock. He drank, like, I'm not exaggerating, like 20 bottles of Nouveau Beaujolais. And I'm now at the end of a day. It's 8 o'clock at night. I'm walking to the end of Shepard and Studios. It's kind of a misty rain, and they open the, the, the doors of the stage, and there comes from the ceiling a 500-pound drunken giant. And he's waving at me, and he's going, hello, boss, like this. And I'm thinking, what do I do for a living? Andre the Giant's drinking habits were legendary. Reports say that he could drink anywhere from 100 to 200 beers in one sitting, and it wouldn't even give him a buzz. Wrestling promoter Arnold Scotland remembers one particular night at a bar with Andre the Giant. One night he was in a bar in uh, Montreal, and he's guys come up and they were bothering him, you know, eh, you're not, you're big, but you're not strong. As if Andre said, look, I just come in here to drink. I don't want to, you know, no problems or anything. Well, these guys kept on, on him. They were, you know, feeling pretty good. Andre couldn't take it any longer. He finally got up and he went for him. They ran out and their car was parked on a, on a sidewalk right in front of the place. They jumped in the car and locked it. And Andre ran around to the side of the driver's side, trying to open the door. He couldn't. And, uh, he got so mad, he reached down, he grabbed the car, and he turned it upside down on the sidewalk with the four guys in it. Now, Andre was able to leave the scene before police arrived to find an upturned car with four drunk hooligans inside. Imagine trying to explain to a cop that a giant had just tipped over their car. And this wasn't the only time. Andre would frequently move his friends' cars into positions that were impossible to get out of, like between two trees or sideways in their driveway. His hands were so large you could fit a silver dollar through one of his rings. Forget playing the piano or dialing a phone. The fingers you have used to dial are too fat. To obtain a special dialing wand, please mash the keypad with your palm now. Andre the Giant could easily walk into a restaurant and eat 12 steaks and 15 lobsters in one sitting. But being 7 foot tall with a fluctuating weight around 450 to 550 pounds, life was never easy. Tim White was Andre's friend and personal handler. You just got to be in his shoes for a second to understand what he went through day in, day out. He couldn't hide from anybody. Wherever he went, he was public. People swarmed to him. Uh, when he got into a hotel room, the bed was too small. The shower came up to his waistline. His fingers were too big to dial the phone. I mean, the guy went through heck every day. And not once did he ever complain. Sometimes he wasn't private in his room because people would chase you up the elevator and find out what room and call your room all night. We've had it. We used to have to check out a hotel sometimes because it got to be too much. It was incredible to me, the patience that he had. 
Sadly, over the years, the effects of his medical condition had continued to wear down his body. Eventually, his immense size was just too much for his heart, and Andre the Giant died in Paris in his hotel room on January 27, 1993. His body was flown back to the United States where his remains were cremated and scattered on his ranch in North Carolina. The ashes weighed 17 pounds. He was 46 years old when he died, and doctors told him he wouldn't live past 40. Though professionally, Andre will always be remembered as the eighth wonder of the world. He's known and loved by fans across the globe as the Gentle Giant. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. our American stories and we like to talk to people from all walks of life we're about to hear from a guy who has an interesting hobby he's a black man who collects Ku Klux Klan robes while hate groups like the Klan have dwindled from a population over a million in the 1920s to somewhere between 3,000 to 5,000 members across the entire country today our guest became fascinated with what makes people like this tick at a very young age Here's Jesse. You've probably seen Daryl Davis on TV. Welcome back. We are about to bring you an almost unbelievable story out into the open. Ask yourself, how willing would you be to make friends with someone who hates you because of your skin color? Well, that's exactly why the man you're about to meet caught our attention. He's the black guy known for his uncanny ability to convert KKK members into kind-hearted everyday Americans such as yourself. Daryl flips Klansmen like he's flipping houses, and he always likes to keep a little trophy. They were given to me by active Klan members who left the organization. This is the robe of an Imperial Wizard. Okay, this is the, the top guy. And uh, blue or purple, your choice, designates the Imperial level. Again, this is a white cotton robe with blue adornments. I keep a lot of them locked up off-site. Um, but I would guess, you know, I, I got three recently. And I would guess maybe I have between 40, 42, 44. Now we'll get back to his robe collection soon enough, because the Daryl Davis story starts with music. Chuck Berry had a very profound impact on me. The man was a genius. You know, many people can say that they wrote a song. Many people can say that they played a song. But few people can claim that they invented a genre of music. And Chuck Berry certainly did that. We would not have rock and roll without Chuck Berry. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans Way back up in the woods among the evergreens There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood Where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good Who never ever learned to read or write so well But he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell Go, go! And uh, when I first uh, heard Chuck Berry, I fell in love with that music And when I saw him, I changed my whole career trajectory that I was on as a kid while Daryl Davis was discovering his love for music, rock and roll was breaking down racial barriers among white and black kids 
who are now beginning to dance with each other. The invention of rock and roll by people like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, uh, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley, and the popularization of it by people like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley, and the Comets. When white kids and black kids heard that new rhythm, that new beat, that boogie-woogie with a backbeat to it, they could not sit still. They bounced up out of their chairs, knocked the ropes over and the signs over, and the next thing you know, they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together for the first time in the history of this country. Police would come in, shut down the show. So rock and roll had brought white youth and black youth together through music. The same thing that great civil rights activists like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and many other ones, black and white, were trying to achieve through their marches, through their demonstrations, their sit-ins, their boycotts, in efforts to bring white and black adults together. Chuck Berry and Elvis were achieving this through music. While rock and roll was bringing the country together, it was around this time that Daryl Davis had his first encounter with racism. When I was a kid, I had a racist incident while marching with the uh, Cub Scouts. I had people throwing uh, rocks and bottles at me, you know, white spectators, and I, d I did not understand why I was the target. And then when racism was explained to me, I could not accept it. I'd never heard of racism, and I could not get my head around the idea that someone who had never spoken to me, someone who knew nothing about me or, or had ever seen me before, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. And I formed a question at the age of 10, 1968, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And I've been seeking that answer now for the next, you know, 49 years. And I, I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, looking for the answer in these books. And I couldn't find it. So in my adult life, I figured, well, who better to ask than someone who would join an organization that is reputed to believe that somebody else is inferior, to who does not look like them or believe as they believe based on the color of their skin or their religious beliefs. So I decided I would seek out Klan members and ask them to answer the question, and then I would get my answer. So Daryl set out on his lifetime quest and eventually set up a meeting with the Klan. He was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Now, a state leader is what's known as a Grand Dragon, which we would call a governor, oversees the entire state. Uh, and then the, the top guy, the national guy who oversees all the states, which we would call a president, that person is known as the Imperial Wizard. So the Grand Dragon, his name was Roger Kelly, and he went from Grand Dragon eventually to Imperial Wizard. He was the first one that I met and sat down with and had a conversation. Daryl met with the Klansmen who were dressed in full regalia, not knowing the person they were about to be interviewed by was a black man. Well, he showed up with his bodyguard, which is called a Grand Nighthawk. A Grand Nighthawk is the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon, like a Grand, uh, like an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. So this Grand Nighthawk walked into the room first, and he was wearing military camouflage uh, fatigues with the Mayok, the blood drop emblem right here, and uh, the initials KKK right here on his chest, uh, embroidered across his beret on his head 
were Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a, a semi-automatic handgun in a holster. He came in and he was followed right behind him by, uh, by Mr. Kelly, the Grand Dragon, in a dark blue suit and tie. When the Nighthawk entered the room and turned the corner and saw me, he just froze. And Mr. Kelly bumped into his back because the guy had stopped short. And they stumbled and regained their balance looking all around the room. And I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know, either the desk clerk, you know, gave them the wrong room number or this was a setup. This is an ambush. So I went like this to display my hands, nothing in them. And I stood up and I approached him. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. My name is Daryl Davis. Come on in. He, both he and the Nighthawk, shook my hand. So far, so good. And they both came in. When we come back, Daryl Davis meets with the Ku Klux Klan. This is Our American Stories. To Jesse's story, his segment with Daryl Davis, the black dude who collects KKK robes. Now, the meeting began as you might suspect a Klansman surprise black guy meeting to go. They insulted our friend Daryl here to his face. Well, we, you know, we began you know, talking back and forth. Uh, he let me know that um, I was inferior because I was black. And I was expecting stuff like that because, you know, I read all these books on the Klan already, so I knew the mentality. But I wanted you know, to draw everything out of him to find out, you know, how can he hate me when he doesn't even know me and hasn't even given me a chance to express myself and see if he still has those feelings. I asked him to have a seat. He sat down. He asked me for some identification, and I gave that to him. And then we uh, proceeded with this uh, interview. Now, I had a bag beside me, and in my bag, I had a copy of the Bible, because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they also claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I'd never seen that in there, so I wanted to be able to pull out my Bible and say, here, please show me chapter and verse, where it says, blacks and whites must be separate. Then, there was a moment of tension. A little later on in the interview, there was kind of a strange noise in the room, and we all jumped. And I just knew that Mr. Kelly had made the noise, because I didn't make it. And because I could not discern what the noise was, I perceived it to be ominous and threatening. And plus, I was hearing that voice in my head, Daryl, don't fool with Roger Roger Kelly, he'll kill you, kind of thing. And I was ready to attack. You know, my eyes had locked with his eyes, because I'm looking at him like, What did you just do? I didn't say that, but my eyes were speaking to him. His eyes had locked with mine, and I could read the expression in his eyes, which were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between the two of us, like, what did either one of you all just do? The ice in the bucket had melted, and the cans of soda shifted, and that's what made the noise. And then we all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. (laughs) But the teaching moment was this. All because 
some foreign and underscore highlight the word foreign entity of which we were ignorant that being the bucket of ice and cans of soda entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made we became fearful and accusatory of one another so the lesson learned is ignorance breeds fear if you don't keep that fear in check that fear will be will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us if you don't keep that hatred in check that hatred will breed destruction what happens next between daryl davis and the klansmen is incredible we became you know the best of friends well it might be hard for us to understand how a black guy becomes friends with another guy who's proud and outspoken of his affiliation with the ku klux klan it helps to understand more about how daryl davis was raised uh, my parents were u.s foreign service so i spent a lot of time you know overseas in various countries around the world uh, with you know as an american embassy brat and today as a professional musician i travel all over this country and around the world if you combine my travels as a child with now my travels as an adult i've been in 53 different countries on six continents because i was exposed early on to many many different cultures ethnicities nationalities traditions colors religions etc and all of that helped shape who i've become and i saw people from all over the world getting along with each other when i was in grade school overseas you know i'd be over there for two years and come back home be here for a few months or a year and then go back to another country when i was a kid in this in the 1960s in, in uh, elementary school my classes were filled with other kids from nigeria italy japan russia france germany Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their kids, we all went to the same school. And that's how I grew up. If you were to peep your head into my classroom door, you would say, that looks like a United Nations of little kids. That scenario was not here, back here in my own country, in the U.S. When I would return, I would either be in newly integrated or still segregated schools that had not quite gotten there yet. So I was either surrounded by all black people or black and white people. Today, when you walk into a, a uh, school classroom, you see what I saw. But back then, I was living 12 to 15 years ahead of my time. While Daryl might continue to be 12 to 15 years ahead of his time, even he became the target of Black Lives Matter. In his Netflix documentary called Accidental Courtesy, Daryl is confronted by a young BLM activist. Time going into people's houses that don't love you, a house where they want to throw you under the basement. So you believe that nobody can change? No, you, I believe you believe the wrong people can change. What do you mean the wrong people can change? White supremacists can't change. You don't believe they can change? White, no, white supremacists can't change. But I can change your mind because you look like me. You ain't doing nothing but collecting something that's going to build your own credibility. You're nothing but a pimp in a pulpit. And you're nothing but ignorant. Daryl later said that he befriended that young BLM activist, and that they came to an understanding. In the same way that Daryl brings understanding to so many others, it all started with that simple question that came to him at the age of 10. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? One of my very favorite quotes of all time is um, by Mark Twain. It's called the travel quote. And Mark Twain says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. 
broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. We'd like to close our look into the life of Daryl Davis on a note that has absolutely nothing to do with race. While he's passionate about bringing people together, it's not the only aspect of what makes Daryl Davis an interesting person. He shared with us a fond childhood memory of the time he crossed paths with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Bruce Springsteen, all on the same day. Well, Chuck Berry was coming to uh, Coalfield House at University of Maryland, the sports arena there. It was going to be Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, of course, I got down there super early hoping I would, you know, be able to sneak in and maybe meet him during sound check or rehearsal. And because I knew that the promoter had to supply a uh, backing band for him. So the concert uh, would not begin until like about 8 p.m. that evening. And I was a kid. I got a ride down there. And um, around noontime, you know, like eight hours before showtime, and the hangar doors were open. People were like bringing in equipment and speakers and lights and things like that. I, I just walked on in. Nobody stopped me. Um, so I said, you know, there was no security there at that particular time. And so I just hung out back there, stood out of everybody's way. Uh, the band came, and I moved over near the stage where the band was, figuring that when Chuck comes for this sound check, you know, I'll get to see my idol and meet him or whatever. And the band was very nervous. Uh, they'd never worked with Chuck Berry before. They were down from New Jersey to, uh, to play for him. And their sound check was at 2 o'clock. So they assumed that he would be there around 2 o'clock. Well, 2 o'clock rolled around and no Chuck Berry. <laughs> and uh, they even got more nervous. And so they went on stage. They did their sound check. They ran through some Chuck Berry songs. And they sounded fantastic. And, uh, you know, the hours ticked by and still no Chuck Berry. And so um, they went on at the, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, did a short set. And then uh, Jerry Lee Lewis you know, came and I got to meet him. And uh, he came on and did his thing, still no Chuck Berry. And about, about 15 minutes or so before uh, Jerry Lee finished, in walked Chuck Berry through the backstage door. He came in just by himself, no guitar, nothing. And he walked right by me and I froze. I thought, oh, you know, because, you know, it was like total shock. He went right by me, and there was somebody standing down the hallway, and he stopped and spoke with that person. I don't know what he said, but in retrospect, I do. That person pointed further down the hallway to a door, and Chuck, you know, went down and went inside that door. And then a few minutes later, he came back out, went right back by me again, back outside the backstage door, and then he returned with his guitar. And so, in retrospect, what happened was he went down to the promoter's office to get paid up front, and then he went and got his guitar. And he doesn't bring his guitar in until he, until he has money. So, um, brought his guitar in, and then, you know, I was standing over there near where the band was. He came over, and um, the band leader walked up to him. He's like taking his guitar out of the case and said, Hi, you know, my name is Bruce Springsteen. We're your, you know, we're your backup band. We thought you were going to be here this afternoon. Just said, no, you know, just totally oblivious. And um, he said, uh, we ran through some of your songs. I, I think everything should be okay. Do you know which ones you know, you're going to play tonight? And Chuck said something to the effect of, I think I'll play some Chuck Berry. <laughs> and he went on stage. The band went on right after him. 
and he just like you know went right into it. No key, no count off, nothing. And the band was right there with them. And that just kind of like just blew my mind. And that is the story of the one and only Daryl Davis. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there, and why, and the intersection of commerce, too, because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new, and sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals, and we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words... The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles. And the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. And by the way, the headline of that article was, Nice Trash Can, Let's See What the Bears Think. And, well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, God's country, if ever there is, in this great country, among them running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And, Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first, your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy. Sure. I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited, and fell in love with the place and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho, but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from, from the uh, Montana border. Yep. And, and, yes, uh, I do have a dream job um, and, and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years. You know, what people don't know and so often forget in this great country is you get out of Philadelphia and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania, and the Poconos know it's not Yellowstone, but, my goodness, hunting, fishing, and plenty of bears, right? Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears. And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they? Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive. Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This is exactly. pretty simple. And uh, so your, your, your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your, their life and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy. Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not, no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero uh, here in West Yellowstone, Montana this morning, so still trying to warm up. Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you? Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida. Now, tell me this, as, you, as you're, you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume. Yes, very much so. I, I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here. And tell folks about, about Yellowstone and, and the folks 
who are listening who've never been, uh, what they're missing, uh, what they should come and see, and when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the, or the, or the traffic or the population that swells? Talk a bit about Yellowstone. Yeah, well, Yellowstone is very, very big. It's 2.2 million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April, uh, right to around the 1st of November, and that's because of the depth of snow that we get. But um, to me, the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June. Um, after that, you know, with the kids getting out of school, it does get uh, very crowded, and it seems to take away the, you know, the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people. But uh, I've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen 10 bears in, in one day. You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, the park can, you know, elevation-wise can go very, very high, um, and, and so it can snow at any time of the year. Uh, snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August, um, so pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach, and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime, you have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground. You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone. And it, and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact. Uh, but talk about, you know, the, 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 the nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what are things you do to either prevent it? Can you, can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time? And then, B, when you see one, what do you do? What do you actually do? Sure, sure. So, so there's an estimated uh, population of 700 grizzlies in Yellowstone Park and an average of one bear attack uh, per year where there's uh, around 4 million visitors. So the chance of getting attacked is, is, is pretty slim, uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen, there's, there's a couple things that you need to do. Is, is, um, uh, before you, uh, you're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, uh, make some noise, you're walking with a group of people, perhaps. You hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and, and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly. And so you're going to talk in a low-com voice kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to obviously walk away, um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible that bear is charging at you. That bear can run 35 miles an hour. That's 42 feet per second. So you have to be ready. And, and yes, that bear is going to be very close, 10, 15 feet away, 20 feet away when you start to discharge that can. Um, and with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to 18 miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray. And, and it 
basically renders them useless for a couple hours. They, um, uh, you know, their their eyes are watering, they're they're tearing, they're coughing, and uh, and then of course you're going the opposite way. But fortunately, not too many encounters. But yes, you need to be prepared. You need to look for fresh bear scat, fresh bear sign, and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking. Yeah, and that's so that is pretty extraordinary. Four million visitors, seven hundred grizzlies, and only one bear attack per year. But there there are probably multiple sightings. I would assume. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's it's a, um, a a personal you know uh, uh, distance that you need to stay away from those bears and whether it be a bison fifteen hundred pound bison have a a personal space just like a grizzly bear just like a moose and so if you get into that bear's personal space then you're threatening that bear and 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 perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them even even though you know we don't want to have anything to do with them and and so. Again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears. And, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand. You want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer. And before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close, and then she charges. Yeah, and by the way, don't get too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Brandy Gravatt. The Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves. And it's running the bear safety product testing over at the Grizzly, Wolf, and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. This is Our American Stories. Two and five hundred pounds. Brown bears weigh between three hundred and over a thousand pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service. This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off with Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, among them running the bear safety product testing. So before we dig into the testing, talk to the audience about the multiple types of bears that are out there. How many types are there that Americans can encounter? And what are they like, these different types? Because the bears are very different as categories, aren't they? Yeah, there's, um, you know, in, in North America, we have, the brown, we have the brown bear, which is also the grizzly bear, and then we have the black bear. The grizzly bears pretty much are only in both uh, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And they're very intelligent animals. I, I think that needs to be stated. And they're also very food-driven. Talk about those two things. Sure. They're, they're very, very smart. They also have huge appetites, and that's what tends to get them into trouble where we may average 2,000 calories a day, a bear could average 5,000, and then, then that number even goes much, much higher right before hibernation. It could be as high as 20,000 calories a day so that they could build up those fat reserves before hibernating. 
And so where do the problems come between people and berries? I assume it's just the food. It is, it is. Um, when, when bears gain access to unsecured, um, um, unnatural foods, whether it be dog food, whether it be the, the bird feeder, whether it be the garbage, uh, the dirty barbecue grill, um, those bears are going to take full advantage of that easier meal than going out in the woods and tearing apart a log and getting some ants and some, some, some grubs perhaps and, and some blueberries, huckleberries. Um, and so they're going to go the easy route every time. And the problem lies that, that when they become, you know, unafraid of people, they become around our houses, there's then uh, the potential for problems as in a, a bear attack to humans. And so in, in, in large measure, many of these problems are occurring in, I would, I would assume, the outlying suburbs that intersect with nature and intersect with the woods and even in, in traditional suburbia. Talk about that. Sure, sure. As we continue to expand into, into bear country, it definitely is a big factor where more problems arise. Uh, where a bear once freely roamed through that meadow, through that field, through that woods, now there's a mall, now there's a housing development perhaps. And, and so it's definitely very, very tough for them. You know, on average, a female bear has a home range of around 50 miles, and a male uh, double that, if not even a little bit more. So they travel a great distance throughout the day, always searching for food. And why, didn't, why and how did the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, where you work, become the place uh, to test bear safety products? Where, where and how did that happen, Randy? Sure, sure. Well, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center opened in 1993, and we recently, in 2000, became a not-for-profit uh, wildlife park and educational facility. And we were approached by an organization called the IGBC, that stands for Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee, and it's made up of a bunch of members, whether it be Forest Service, Park Service, even Parks Canada, uh, a bunch of uh, great folks. And, and the idea is for them to um, sustain the bear population, to monitor the bear population. Well, with so many bears being put down that, that had gained access to that unnatural foods and the garbage and such, and that were being put down, um, they came up with an idea that uh, there would be a testing program. And with our eight grizzly bears, uh, we made the fit. And around 15 years ago, we were approached to see if, our, uh, if we would be willing to do it. And it's worked out very well. Um, so basically what we do is whether it's a manufacturer that produces a cooler, a polycart trash can, a dumpster, uh, they either ship the product here or they bring the product here, and then we put it into the bear's habitat. We do put the bear's favorite food inside of it. So that would be peanut butter, that would be fish, honey, um, and, and then it has to withstand 60 minutes of contact time. Most of the containers cannot uh, have a hole larger than an inch and a half. If it does, it is considered a fail. And then there is a, a, another factor with those polycart trash cans, those ones that you'll wheel out to the end of your driveway. A lot of times when they're uh, bear-resistant, uh, you and I would take our finger and put it into a latch mechanism to release that lid. Well, that latch system has to work um, when it's done being tested for that 60 minutes. Walk us through a product testing session and what happens. And I love the, uh, I love Kabuk, or is it Kabuk? The Kobak, the destroyer, is your most skilled testing bear. Talk about him or her and then talk about what this product testing session looks like. And do you have video of this? Because we'd love to see it. Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely have video of it. 
Um, yeah, Kobuk uh, is from Delta Junction, Alaska. Kobuk is actually a river uh, in Delta Junction, Alaska. That's how he got his name. But yeah, he's been here for um, 18 years, and he's uh, earned that uh, nickname as Kobuk the Destroyer because he seems to be able to get into most products. You and I, Lee, we can take our hands, we can, at our wrist, we can turn our hands side to side. Well, Bear cannot do that. Um, and, and, and some of these trash cans that are being tested, it's ones where you and I would take our fingers and reach up and, and release a latch mechanism. Well, grizzly bears with huge front claws, somehow, some way, Kobuk has learned to, to literally twist his wrist a little bit, twist his body, and get those claws up in there and, and release that mechanism. Um, yeah, most, most manufacturers fear Kobuk the Destroyer, but... Uh, many of our other bears are, are very uh, adept at getting into a, into the products because, again, there's that special food reward. We test anywhere from 40 to 80 products a year. All summer long is our testing season. And um, uh, so when there is no bears in the habitat, uh, I will take a product, I walk it into the habitat, and this is an acre-and-a-half habitat with two ponds with live fish, we take that product, so we'll talk about a cooler. That cooler is going to have padlocks. It has to have padlocks. They're going to rip the rubber latches off right away. So we put the food in, put the, the locks on, put it out there. We leave the habitat before the bears come out. Every product tested is uh, filmed for documentation. But those bears come out of what we call bear den. They come out, and, and with their sense of smell and their vision, they're able to see that cooler. They're walking up to it. They are... Uh, biting at it, they're chewing at it, they're rolling it around, they're even flipping it up in the air perhaps to land on a rock to maybe break the lock open, to break the latch system perhaps. Uh, they're, they're super, super smart, and, and yes, through all these years, because a bear can live up to 30 years long, and, and so some of our bears are very old, and, and through these 15 years of testing, they've learned you know, better, better ways to get in each, each and every time. Yeah, they've learned some tricks as they get older. They do. They do, again, because of that food reward. Yep. So here's an example, Lee. So let's say we had 10 coolers in a row, and every one of those coolers passed the test. The bears were not able to gain access. Well, the chance of a bear trying to get in that 11th cooler uh, is pretty slim because the first 10 they were not able to get in. So you know the term, we throw them a bone. So what we'll do is we'll take a cooler put that same amount of food inside, but maybe uh, just use zip ties versus padlocks. Bears come out, they get in, they get a food reward, and, and it just, uh, you know, it, it, it excites them all over again to, to keep uh, testing the products. And the hope here, I would assume, is that the, the more uh, bears have no success with human coolers and garbage cans, uh, the better off we all are because there are fewer encounters because the bears don't get that, that beautiful food reward. Exactly. That's the ultimate goal is that it benefits the bears out in the wild. If a bear does not get a food reward from our, our house, our neighborhood, they're going to stay in the woods where they belong. And, and if I may use an example, if we have the Jones and we have um, the Smiths, and the Jones are very, very clean, uh, no bird feeder, no dog food, the barbecue grill, uh, but then the, the neighbors are not so clean, and uh, uh, the uh, mom and two cubs are frequenting the area. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night, and the, the clean family, they, they, somebody forgot something in their vehicle perhaps. They walk outside. It's dark. It's midnight. It's 11 o'clock. And they surprise mom and the cubs 
well, uh, they end up getting mauled where, where here they were the ones that, that were being clean and, and, you know, careful with their food when their neighbors made the mistake. And that's why we all need to be on that same page and not allow those bears uh, near our homes. Yeah, but it only takes one or two of us to ruin the ruin it life for the bears and for ourselves. So uh, well, well taken, point well taken. How can our listeners, Randy, visit and support your Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center? Talk about that. Sure. Um, again, we're not-for-profit. We are open every day of the year. Uh, obviously, we have a website, uh, grizzlyandwolfdiscovery.org, and then we do have what's called a uh, the webcam for our wolves, a webcam for our bears, so people can view them uh, limited hours in the wintertime, and, and that does bring up something interesting as far as us being 39 below zero this morning. Our bears here at the center, even though we don't do the testing in the wintertime, um, our bears uh, do not hibernate because of a constant food supply. So the same is true for any bear in the wild, whether it be Florida, whether it be Texas, Minnesota. If bears are able to obtain a food source, and whether it be warmer temperatures, they're going to not hibernate and or hibernate for a shorter period of time. Well, Randy, we appreciate you joining us. And we're talking to Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And, Randy, we'd love to visit you when we go out. Uh, we're out in Jackson. We have an affiliate there, and we'd love to come visit when we get the chance. And thanks so much for joining us. Excellent. Thank you. Sounds good. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all the work we do at ouramericannetwork.org. And if you've got stories like this, and we just consider these great American stories, post them at ouramericannetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. <laughs>